Hello, Covenant family, and happy Friday to you. Today is Good Friday, and although our observance of this season of Lent has been interrupted by COVID-19, we weren't anticipating giving up so many things this year for Lent, and although We won't be able to celebrate Easter together in the flesh this Sunday, although we will, at a later date, celebrate together once we can come together in the sanctuary once again and worship God. We will have another Easter celebration. Nonetheless, we don't want to miss the opportunity this week to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ, to think on the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ for us. For if we fail to think on, meditate on the sufferings of Jesus Christ for our behalf, then we will never be able to truly celebrate Easter. How does one get to an empty tomb without first going through death? Furthermore, if we fail to meditate on the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, our lives will be devoid of true discipleship. Scripture doesn't just lift up the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ as the sin-atoning sacrifice for all, but it also lifts up the sufferings of Jesus Christ as our example that we are to follow that we are to humble ourselves as Jesus did, that we are to die to ourselves, that we are to put our sin to death and live in the newness of life. Therefore, I wanted to this day to provide for you a meditation on the cross of Jesus Christ. This meditation will come from the gospel according to Mark chapter 15, this scripture. Before we turn to God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer that God might bless the reading and hearing of his word. Heavenly Father, send now your spirit among us as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word this day. Move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey in joy. For this we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. This is Mark chapter 15, picking up at verse 33, which is picking up in the middle of the crucifixion. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabbatthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now to him who loves us, 
who has freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our passage this morning picks up in the middle of the crucifixion account at the sixth hour or around noontime. At this point, Jesus had been on the cross according to Mark's gospel since the third hour, which was about 9 a.m. And I think it is safe to assume that Jesus had to be exhausted by now. His body, which was hanging naked and exposed to the noontime heat, had already been bruised, battered, and bloodied from the horrible flogging he had received at the hands of the Roman soldiers just before his death march to Golgotha, in which he carried at least part of the way what probably would have been a very heavy horizontal beam of the cross that he would be nailed to. You see, the Romans had perfected the horrible, maniacal art of torture, of beating someone with leather whips, with sharp pieces of bone, glass, or lead embedded into them, which not only ripped open the skin with each last, but cut into the muscle in the bone. They would beat victims to near death. Occasionally, they crossed that line. They did this as a prelude to hanging them on the instrument of death that was the cross. If the scourging was not enough, the cross was particularly cruel. It was designed to deliver a slow, painful death. This is why our word excruciating comes from the word crucify. And the agony for those who died on the cross was excruciating. Sometimes victims would be tied to the cross to hang up there for days, left to dehydration and exposure or even predation by wild animals, which found a very easy meal of a victim unable to get away. Some, as was in Jesus' case, were nailed to the cross. The nails were perfectly placed to inflict maximum suffering. The arms were extended. Huge nails were driven through the hands or the wrists. The guards had been trained to place these nails so that they would not break any bones, but so that they would hold up the body to the cross in a manner that would require the crucified to pull himself up to draw in each breath, since the chest muscles and lungs were hyperextended. And with every movement of the crucified, not only was his scourged raw back rubbing against the rough wood of the cross, But the nails in the hands and wrists pushed against the bones and the median nerves, causing fiery bolts of pain to shoot up the arms. Death would eventually come by way of asphyxiation after the victim became too tired and weak to pull himself up to breathe. The feet could be nailed directly to the vertical beam of the cross or to prevent a quicker death by asphyxiation, The feet could be nailed on a footrest or one foot to each side of the cross to take the strain off the arms and allow the majority of the victim's body weight to be placed on the lower half of the body. This would prolong the suffering, perhaps for days, in the same manner as those who were tied to the cross. Death could be sped up by breaking the legs of the victims to place all the weight on the upper body, again, limiting the victim's ability to breathe. Other means of death for victims of crucifixion included cardiac rupture, heart failure, profound shock, acidosis from the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood, pulmonary embolism, and sepsis. 
This was the horrible death that was reserved for criminals and enemies of the Roman Empire for the very purpose of not only punishing them, but also as a detriment to all those who dared commit a crime or challenge the authority of Rome. The physical agony and the public humiliation of flogging and crucifixion, being hung high on a cross, naked and bloodied, was meant to be so horrible as to strike fear into the hearts of any would-be criminal, to make them think twice about committing a punishable offense. And so, this is what Jesus endured, a criminal's death. But also remember here that for Jesus, that as he hung nailed upon the cross, he was not just exhausted from the physical torture that his body had endured in the period of time after being condemned to death and in the first three hours on the cross. Keep in mind that Jesus had been arrested the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been tried before the council of chief priests and elders and scribes who had delivered him over to Pilate to be crucified. Pilate questioned him, and then according to Luke's gospel, sent him to Herod, who questioned him as well, but eventually sent him back to Pilate. And then finally, Pilate, after what had been an all-night and early morning runaround, delivered Jesus over to be beaten and crucified as a part of a prisoner exchange that was a custom during the Passover. So all of that is to say, Jesus had to be physically and emotionally exhausted from the little to no sleep he had had the night before, even before the flogging and the crucifixion. And this is what Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, tried to depict for us, the physical agony of the suffering of Christ, who hung humiliated on the cross, having been mocked, reviled, and spat upon by his enemies, and betrayed, denied, and abandoned by his closest friends, the disciples. The great 19th century pastor and author J.C. Ryle is surely correct when he noted the catalog of all the pains endured by our Lord's body is indeed a fearful one. Seldom has such suffering been inflicted on one body in the last few hours of life. The most savage tribes and their refinement of cruelty could hardly have heaped more agonizing tortures on an enemy than were heaped on the flesh and bones of our beloved master. And yet, and yet as horrendous as the physical agony of the cross was for Jesus, there was a pain much deeper that the gospel writers give witness to. Mark, in particular, wants us to understand this. Mark's audience would have been very familiar with the physical agony of crucifixion, but he wants to reveal to them a much deeper agony. It is the agony that is the cost of those who are redeemed by his sacrifice. We see here in Mark's text that at the sixth hour, the sky turned dark. The sun is blotted out in both Greco-Roman and Jewish traditions, darkness is sometimes reported at the death of great figures. It is a sort of divine eulogy or a weeping of all creation over the death of whoever the great person was. 
To apply the same thought to the crucifixion account, as some have done, however, it really misses the mark. This is not some mythological, fictional account meant to add weight and honor to the deceased in the minds of generations to come, as it surely was when it was said to have happened after the death of Caesar, for instance. This was a historic and supernatural event that should not be mistaken. You see, the darkening of the sun and moon and stars was foretold by the prophets such as Amos and Joel and Isaiah. Amos 8, 9 states, for instance, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And when the prophets speak of this event, it is always in the same context. The judgment of God. When Mark tells us that darkness covered the whole land, this isn't Mark being sentimental so that those who would read this account would hold Jesus in high esteem. Rather, he is giving witness to the fact that something truly cosmic is in reality happening. And the timing of this event at Passover should draw our minds to the first Passover, which was immediately preceded by the plague of darkness over Egypt, an indication that God's curse was upon them. God's judgment had come. And the very next thing that Mark records for us is Jesus's cry from the cross at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the words of Psalm 22.1. But let us not think that Jesus is using this as an opportunity to recite some scripture to the people observing the crucifixion. We can and should expect scripture to flow naturally from the lips of the one who is the word incarnate. But this is an honest cry, a shout of deep despair from the core of his being. And this is where we begin to see and understand the depth of Jesus's agony. As Jesus's cry from the cross, as he hangs dying in the darkness, brings into sharp relief exactly what is happening. Do you see it? Do you understand? These words are the words of a man who is experiencing the profound horror of God's judgment, of one who has been separated from God. Jesus, who was fully God, had become fully man in order to completely identify himself with sinners so that he might undo the curse of the fall by living in perfect obedience to the Father and then offering up this perfect life as a sacrifice for sin. For only a perfect life would make a perfect sacrifice. And to make atonement for these sins, he was taking the sins of the world upon himself, that he might also appease the wrath of God in suffering the penalty of these sins. These sins deserved death, a horrible death. And this meant, in covenantal terms, by taking upon himself the sins of the many, that they might be ransomed, he was receiving upon himself the curse of the covenant and was therefore cut off from God. This was the penalty of breaking the covenant. So his cry from the cross expressed 
the unfathomable pain of one who has been forsaken by God. Notice here how Jesus addresses this prayer. In all the other prayers recorded for us by the gospel writers, Jesus addresses God as Father. We saw this a few weeks ago in our sermon of John 17. And this is what he teaches his disciples to do, to know God intimately. But here on the cross, even though it is still personal, my God, it loses its intimacy. Why? Because it is the cry of a man who is experiencing a loss of intimacy, is experiencing alienation and abandonment, is experiencing forsakenness. Mark's gospel is telling us that as excruciating as the physical suffering of the cross was, it paled in comparison to the agony of the separation with his heavenly father that is the result of taking on the sins of the world and becoming accursed by God. I think Reformed theologian Philip Ryken is correct when he states, Jesus did not just feel forsaken, he was forsaken. It was not just that Jesus experienced passing sensations of alienation and rejection on the cross. It was more than that. What Jesus was doing on the cross was bearing sin, carrying sin, wearing sin. Jesus was taking the sins of the world upon his shoulders. It was as if God had taken a giant bucket and scooped up all the sins of his people, all the jealousy and the anger and the lying, all the rebellion and the stealing, all the hypocrisy and the envy and the swearing and dumped them all out on Jesus Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Once he had done that, God the Father had to forsake all that sin. When Jesus was wearing our sin on the cross, God the Father could not bear to look at the sin or at his son. He had to avert his gaze. He had to shield his eyes. He had to turn his back. He had to condemn and reject and curse and damn that sin. Think about that. Think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is a deep mystery, a profound mystery, a horrible mystery, but a wonderful mystery. The sinless one has become sin for us. And it was at that very point of humanity's greatest sin, the rejection and crucifixion of God himself in his only begotten beloved son, At the point of our deepest rebellion against him, he offered himself up for us that even our deepest sin might be overcome and defeated. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And this meant that the perfect one, the righteous one, who found his ultimate delight in fellowship with his heavenly father was accursed by God and alienated from God for us, for you. And for me, God made him, his beloved son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God poured out his wrath, his just judgment against sin, a penalty that belonged to us on his son. 
He became the rejected one for us, took the wrath of God onto himself for us. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. He was forsaken by God in agony far beyond our wildest nightmares. Surely, Jesus has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He did this for us. And I love how J.C. Rao brings it home for us. Was he flogged? It was done so that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at the last? And that, the most painful and disgraceful death, it was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. Mark wants us to see the agony of the cross. He wants us to understand the depths that God would go to redeem us, even to hell itself. But through the grotesqueness of the cross, the glory of God is revealed. What seems like a humiliating defeat is not as it seems. God is in control from the first to the last. It is ultimately not Jesus' enemies and executioners who take his life from him. It is Jesus who willingly and obediently gives it up. He submitted his life even to death that it might be overcome. And so as his mission is finished, as his full obedience to the Father is fulfilled, as his substitutionary sacrifice is completed, Jesus breathed his last breath. And there is victory in this. Redemption is accomplished. Sin and death are defeated. Although we will only see the fullness of that reality in our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, reconciliation becomes a reality. The veil is torn, which separates us from God. A new and living way has been opened for us into the presence of God through the tearing of the flesh of Jesus Christ. Even for us Gentiles, as the old covenant with its temple system meets its end in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so even as we find Jesus' own people rejecting him, we have a Roman centurion who stands at the foot of the cross and makes a profession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this is the glory of the cross, that in it we get a clear picture of who God is for us. We can see the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love, that there is no confusion about the extent to which God will go to rescue his people from the pit. What a horrible and glorious day it was that Friday that the sky turned black and the crimson blood of our Savior was poured out for the sins of the many. And the implications of the agony and glory of the cross are profound in many. 
I would like to briefly challenge us to consider and meditate on three as we prepare ourselves for our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on Easter morning. These should be plenty to occupy our thoughts and prayers over this weekend. First, the agony of the cross should teach us something of the true nature of our sin. The agony of the cross should teach us something of the true nature of our sin. One theologian said, if you want to know what God really thinks about sin what he in, and what he intends to do about it, look at Jesus rejected on the cross and listen to Jesus forsaken on the cross. That is what sin deserves, the wrath and curse of God. That is what sinners deserve, to be put to death and damned for their sins. The cross confronts each of us with the question, do you truly understand the depth of your guilt before God? It's very easy sometimes for us to write off our sins as no big deal. Oh, I just told a little lie. Oh, I just gossiped a little. Oh, I was just a little self-indulgent. Oh, I just got a little angry and short-tempered. Oh, I was just a little impatient. Every sin deserves death. Every one. But there are so many ways in which we try to convince ourselves that our sins really aren't that significant. And sometimes we even try to justify them as good and right. We've seen this very clearly play out in the college admissions scandal over the past year. But we have also Felicity Huffman, a television star, who was charged in this scandal and pled guilty to paying $15,000 to get her daughter into a college by taking part in a rigged college entrance exam. She issued a rather stout apology upon her guilty plea in which she confessed her guilt, acknowledged the pain she had caused to all those involved, expressed her willingness to accept the consequences of her wrongdoing and articulated her shame over her actions. Now, it's not for me to judge whether this was a true confession or not, but I confess that I was very impressed with the language used in the apology and what was clearly avoided. It would have been very easy, I think, for her to write off what she did as just an attempt to help her daughter succeed in life, which is something all of us as parents want for our children. But there were no excuses, only what seemed to be genuine contrition in her apology. And as I read her apology, I found myself wondering if my confessions before the Lord rang out with the same amount of genuineness and depth as I heard in Huffman's words, which then made me wonder how often I stop, truly consider the seriousness of my sin. Do I not only acknowledge my sin? But do I recognize it's just punishment and consequences? Am I so ashamed of my sin that I wish to truly turn from it? These are questions that we are confronted with in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross is a vivid picture of the seriousness of our sins. So secondly, the cross should teach us to despise our sin. The cross should teach us to despise our sin. It should teach us to hate our sin, for it is 
this sin that inflicted such suffering on Jesus on the cross. Each and every sin, no matter how small, is a sin that put Jesus on that cross, that made necessary the atonement found there with all of its agony, that caused separation from God. Therefore, another question that we are forced to ask ourselves is, which do I love more, my sin or my Savior? Each temptation to submit to the desires of our flesh is an opportunity to show where our true affections lie. But we should also hate our sin because it is this sin that separates and alienates us from God. The cross shows us the true reality that physical pain has no equal in the suffering of being separated spiritually from God. There's a reason why Jesus says that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We often try to ignore the spiritual pain that sin causes in our lives and are fairly successful, even as it is hard to ignore physical pain. The cross is a demonstration that it is better to be in physical discomfort and faithful to God than to sin and have physical pleasure. We should hate our sin because of the spiritual sickness it inflicts on us that separates us from the source of our health and life. Third and finally, the agony and the glory of the cross should teach us the depth of the good news of Jesus Christ and what it means to have become children of God in Him by faith in His all-sufficient sacrifice. The cross should teach us the depth of the good news. Think about what the forsakenness of Jesus teaches us. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. He endured that agony of being cut off from the Father. He became totally bereft of the grace and presence of God. He was utterly separated from all the blessedness of the Father. In order that, we never have to experience that curse. Jesus became a curse in order that all who trust in his sacrifice for their sins, poor and miserable sinners though they may be, that in him they might receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in order that a place could be prepared for them in his father's house, in order that God might never turn his back on them, in order that one day they may see the face of God. This is a glorious truth, dearly beloved. And I pray it is true about us, that we are among those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. If you haven't placed your faith in him, I urge you, do not delay. Run to him. Run to the foot of his cross. Find forgiveness there. See and experience the love and grace of God there. And may it transform you into a follower of Jesus Christ who wants to know nothing more than Christ in him crucified, who wants to live for no other reason than to offer your life in grateful obedience to the praise of his glory. Dearly beloved, May God bless you today. May God bless you as you meditate on the cross. And may you truly be able to celebrate the richness and fullness of Easter this Sunday. Amen.